Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One, a leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and environment. Solar power is surging in California, yet it still accounts for a small slice of the state's electricity. Can sun energy live up to its potential? What policies, technologies, and financing are needed to fuel solar and other clean energy in the Golden State? Here to discuss these questions and much more, we welcome Mike Peavy, chair of the California Public Utilities Commission, Nancy McFadden, Senior Vice President of PG&E, Mike Splinter, Chairman and CEO of Applied Materials, and Bob Epstein, Founder of Environmental Entrepreneurs. Please give them a warm welcome. Before we begin, I should note uh, for transparency that both PG&E and Applied Materials are uh, welcome uh, supporters of the Commonwealth Club. Mike Peavy, let's start with you. Uh, California had a goal of having 20% of its electricity from renewable sources in 2010. That's not going to happen. Why? You're right. It's not going to happen. And it's going to vary. Uh, it'll probably be, be somewhere around 13 14% uh, total. They, the utilities vary, honestly, in uh, their um, uh, achievements in that regard. But the principal reasons it's, it won't, we won't achieve the 20% by the end of this year have to do with the inability of, to do financing, uh, adequately, given the economic climate of the last uh, two years, that's a factor. Transmission, the inability to site transmission in a, in a uh, speedy way to, to bring uh, solar uh, to the marketplace and wind and geothermal and other uh, um, biomass and so forth is another factor. And perhaps the biggest uh, factor of all is the rigidity and inability of government uh, at all levels, the federal, the state, and local levels, in my opinion, to move uh, uh, with speed, facilely, uh, to site projects and get them up and going. Uh, it's very frustrating the, uh, to uh, be part of that. We are making a lot of progress. I don't want to dismiss what we're doing, and uh, my agency is in the a very leadership role in this, in both solar and other uh, renewable technologies, but things are lagging uh, in a, behind in a, uh, compared to what we could and should be doing. And I'll just close this first uh, uh, response to the question by saying, last week a Pasadena company, eSolar, announced it was going to build a 2,000-megawatt uh, central station solar facility in Mongolia, in China. This follows on the heels of another company uh, from Arizona, First Solar, uh, also committing to do a similar thing in China. I could promise you that those facilities will get built quicker than we build anything of that size in California. And we'll get back to China and some of those big projects. Uh, Nancy McFadden, if California is not make, meeting its goals for this year, Governor Schwarzenegger has an even more ambitious goal for 30, a third of uh, electricity in California to come from renewable sources by 2030. Can we make that ambitious goal? Well, I think we have to start with the premise that we can 
but we have to understand that all of the challenges that Mike laid out in meeting the 20% exist in even greater measure to meet 33%. We at PG&E right now have about 14% of our portfolio renewable energy. And we have contracted for over 20% by the end of this year and certainly by 2013, which is the official deadline. But whether or not we see those megawatts actually being delivered is really a matter of the kinds of challenges that Mike laid out. Now, the, the silver lining is that I think there's a commitment here in this state. There's leadership, and Mike said his agency is working hard. They're a real leader in trying to break down these barriers and bring common sense into trying to meet the kinds of real complicated challenges that we have in transmission and siting. And it's really going to be a matter of everybody, government, utilities, ratepayers, customers, environmental groups, and government at every level, local, state, and federal, in unprecedented proportions working together. So it's, it's a real high calling, but it is possible. Mike Splinter, explain for us the economics of this, the changes in, in pricing of, of photovoltaics and other solar. How does solar stack up against other fuel sources, and how that's changing? Well, I'd start by, by saying the history of solar is that it's been quite expensive. And, uh, but it's a manufactured technology, and the cost has been coming down, and recently it's been coming down very rapidly, a drop in panel prices during the last year of over 30%. Uh, not that we can expect that every year, but... Uh, Too fast for some? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> price dropping ahead of cost dropping is generally not a thing that uh, develops uh, great industries. Uh, but as a, <laughs> uh, but as, a, as I said, the cost I- is coming down, and we're seeing that. Uh, if I just take uh, uh, two areas, one uh, on a rooftop and on the ground... Uh, uh, most of solar deployments today are on the rooftop. 90% of those in California are on the rooftop uh, today, mostly residential rooftop. Those are mostly custom designs. Even if panel prices come down, it's hard to get those to the prices of rooftop solar to come down enough to make it cost-effective without incentive any time in the, f- in the long-term future. Uh, solar on the ground or very large rooftops, the cost can come down quite quickly. We're, we believe that uh, you can get to $3 or below per, of capital cost per installed watt very quickly, and uh, that can translate to a very competitive uh, cost per kilowatt hour in the 15 to 20 percent range, a uh, 15 to 20 cent range. Now, you might think that's high. Uh, but uh, compared these are, to normal utility rates, no, are compared what, three, four, to five, six, gas seven. generated, uh, but these are peaking hours uh, that solar is uh, used for, and actually uh, uh, that rate uh, with incentive can be quite quite competitive at that level, and really generate huge expansion of solar at that time. So solar can cost different uh, things in different uh, places. Bob Epstein, land use is a big part of this, and you have some thoughts about how wherever we put solar, let's talk about land use and placing solar. Uh, Well, sure. So I think the thing to recognize about renewables is they have to go somewhere, and everybody has their favorite spot of land where they don't want solar. (laughs) Um, So if you eliminate all places where somebody cares about, you pretty much have no place to put it, except maybe on Mike's roof. 
Um, so I did, I did a little math, uh, just, just for fun, to try to understand the scale of things. Because there's kind of three choices we can talk about today. There's the large central plants, which are like 200 megawatts, and that's bright sourced in the Mojave. Then there's sort of these mid-range things, 1 to 20 megawatts, and those are in distributed areas. And then there's on top of your roof. So if you're going to meet the governor's 33% goal using the Public Utility Commission's data, you can do it with either 10 million rooftops... Uh, 10,000 distributed solar or 150 central plants. And the real question is going to be which ones can be permitted and which, who's willing to give up their land to use it for different things. So I think a lot of it will, will come down to what, where are the things that are really the most, the most practical, what can be built. I'm convinced that we don't have a technology barrier for getting this done, but we do have an, more institutional barriers than I ever ever realized, you know, 10 years ago when I started getting interested in this. So, Mike Peavy, what's better for California? A few really large plants or rooftops on every, uh, solar panels on every rooftop? Well, it'd be nice if we could have uh, solar panels on every rooftop, but there's a lot of technical problems with that, and there's a lot of cost problems with that. So we need a combination of the two. I mean, that's, it's, it's really, it comes down to that simple. I mean, our, our agency, uh, uh, we have approved a, a program uh, for Southern California Edison to put in 500 megawatts of rooftop solar. Uh, 250 megawatts of it will be on, uh, well, all 500 will be on commercial properties, not individual homes, commercial properties, largely in Riverside and San Bernardino and Los Angeles counties, where there's massive warehousing space, and it's very, very suitable uh, for solar. Although not every roof can you put on a megawatt of solar. I mean, they, it, structurally, sometimes it doesn't work and so forth. Uh, then we, we're doing that. PG&E is an application before us to do a, a very similar program to Edison's, and uh, it it's, uh, would be incautious of me to say we'll, we'll adopt that, uh, <laughs> but it'll be before us very soon for a decision, and San Diego Gas and Electric has a similar proposal uh, to us. We're going to be doing all that. And then we have the, the California Solar Initiative that the legislature passed after the PUC uh, pushed them to do so with the governor's very, very strong support. And that's committed to 3,000 megawatts of rooftop solar, largely residential although and some commercial, in addition to what I just mentioned. That's all going to happen by 2017. The prices are coming down on that, as was mentioned, and, and so forth. In addition, though, the it's still large central station uh, solar, like has been proposed in the Mojave Desert and in the Owens Valley and in the Imperial Valley, uh, is uh, cheaper by and large, although photovoltaic cost uh, uh, is coming down, and uh, shows great promise and will probably be the biggest single share, uh, share of uh, solar by 2015 or 2020 in the state. And we're talking about thousands of megawatts. Uh, if we can get the permitting done and if we can get the transmission, uh, adequate transmission built and so forth. Those are the challenges. As Bob Epstein said, it's not a technical pro challenge. It's a land use challenge. It's an institutional challenge. It's, a, it's an ability of government to act in a speedy way challenge. We all committed to this, but we all have our own backyards and we all have a little bit of nimbyism in each of us. So these things all affect even solar energy, which five years ago everybody said that is the answer to everything, and then now we've become a little more cautious and a little more knowledgeable about some of the, uh, the challenges uh, facing us.
Nancy McFadden, does PG&E have a preference for large centralized uh, plants or distributed uh, generation? You know, I, I think we agree with Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a surprise. Might not be a surprise. <laughs> don't, don't do that too often. I won't <laughs> do that too often. But in this, in this instance, I think actually most people would agree that, that just as when you look at renewable energy, you can't just pick one technology. When you look at solar, you can't just pick one way. And I think we... Um, we believe that it's got to be a combination. Right now, we've, we have about 60% of our renewables under contract are solar. A um, large part of that is uh, devoted to solar thermal contracts, but about 30% is PV and smaller projects. Photovoltaic. We're, yeah. Right. We're looking at exactly what, uh, what Mike said, which is we're looking at a program where we bring 500 megawatts of solar online. 250, which we would own, which are smaller, up to 20 megawatt uh, uh, projects around our substations, which we think is really smart and doable and doable in a timely fashion. Uh, And then we'll do 250 megawatts by contract, which could be an array of that. So I think we really think we got to put the chips down on a number of options. As as each year goes by, we're going to have to adjust and figure out how we can continue to increase the pie. But if we put all of our chips on one, we could end up losers. What's the revenue model for for utilities if there's all of a sudden decentralized power and lots of people who used to be customers are now suppliers? How does that affect the utility industry if if, uh, customers become suppliers? Well, I think, first of all, I think that, that the time, the, a time horizon in which we would really see a flip to everybody being, being their own generator is, is pretty far out in the future. But no matter what happens, we're still going to need a centralized grid, even if we've got lots and lots of rooftop solar. We're still going to need that backbone, especially when you think about a future of electric vehicles, when you think about a future that is uh, as much about communication in the energy field as it is provision of electrons. So the utility industries are going to be around for a long time providing that backbone. But it might get into more information. Uh, Mike Splinter, do you think that these really big plants will really get built? Well, I think some of them will will get built, uh, of course. Uh, One thing that uh, we should uh, maybe hit on is that actually we've had quite quite a bit of success in wind in uh, this state. Not all of it is built here in this state. Uh, Some Mm. of the electrons are imported. Uh, Today it's something like eight or nine to one uh, uh, wind ahead of of solar. Mm -hmm. So while there's – I agree with Mike that there is – a lot of bureaucracy to overcome, uh, cost and incentives are still a big part of uh, getting this equation to move very, very rapidly. Uh, on the big, uh, big installations, uh, there still are a lot of worries about uh, if it's in the desert, do you need water, do you need uh, land permitting, do you have access to the grid, is there transmission? So I think there's a lot, there's barriers, as Mike said, in every one of these uh, uh, implementations, but uh, that one has more barriers th- than most. A lot of people have interest in that land, uh, and we have to see what, what happens and how you get over those barriers, and can you get over them quickly. Well, one area, uh, Bob Epstein, where that's really been in the press lately is, is the desert, the Mojave, where you're affiliated very closely with Natural Resources Defense Council. A lot of environmentalists are upset about plans 
for power and generation in the desert, and there's a particular turtle that uh, is in the way or needs to be protected. Um, that's true, but I'll, I'll tell you something we did. I was at a, NR, I'm a trustee for NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, and uh, we were at a board retreat two years ago, and I asked the staff there a question. I said, if NRDC were responsible of defining all the locations where renewables would be, where the transmission was going to be, uh, and you did it on the least sensitive lands, could you even agree among yourselves? And if you can't, how do you expect multiple government agencies to decide? And to their credit, they took that challenge. They, they worked with the PUC and CC, and they created this process called Ready, the Renewable Energy Transmission Initiative, to go through all the available sites in California and somewhat in the western states and identify for every site its environmental sensitivity and its economic viability. And at the end of the report, they ended up with seven locations which, if properly developed, would have the minimum environmental impact, the best economic value, and would meet the 33% renewable just by themselves. So you can go through a public process and you can find the ones that have the least impact, but they still have some impact. And then you go there and you check the site and you find tortoises or whatever. I mean, the desert, you know, on a, on a wet year is beautiful. And on a dry year, it looks like something you just want to drive through. Um, <laughs> but you have to decide. You can either look at that or you can look at a coal plant or you can look at a nuclear power plant. Um, you can't just say, well, we'll just go without energy. You have to, you have to make these trade-offs. And so both the Sierra Club and NRDC have been environmental leaders, I think, on this of saying, these are the places, it, literally, this is kind of the sacrifice you need to make because it's better off than the alternatives. And then the local environmental groups will say, yes, that's great, but not here. It's exactly what happens. The, it's, I mean, we just uh, last month permitted a, uh, a transmission line. It's called the Tehachapi Line, but it goes through a, an area in, in Southern California, uh, south of the, of the Tehachapi Mountains through a community called Chino Hills. And it was amazing to me, the, the environmental groups are all fighting with each other, some supporting it, some opposed, some wanting to, to go through a park at the Chino Hills State Park, others not wanting it to go through the state park. The national organization being very, like the, not the NRDC, but Sierra Club being supportive of, of all this, the local chapters being opposed. I mean, that's democracy, you know? Uh, I mean, that's the way it works, and uh, you have to accept that. But sometimes it can be very frustrating when, when you're dealing with climate change, global warming and you feel the, a real need to move with dispatch on things. What would you change, policy-wise or structurally, to make the facilitate, facilitate this? That's a very good question. I, 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 it, and it's, it's a question dealing with both the federal level and the state level, and even to some degree a local level. There are moments when I, and days when I get up in the morning and say, and say I, I just would like to be the czar for a year <laughs> and just be able to make all these decisions for myself uh, by myself, like kind of like they do in China. You know, they decide to have something, that's going to be it. You know, they're going to rip out a piece of Shanghai. It's just ripped out. It's not, not a lot of environmental concern goes into that. But that's not the way our system works, and I, I really wouldn't want that. But I do think that we need far greater coordination. And, we, you know, we signed these agreements. We signed these agreements between the Interior Department and the State of California. We signed them within California between the Energy Commission and Department of Fish and Game. Then they go unimplemented. <laughs> Very little happens. We sign the agreements, and then the people say, oh, well, yes, that's nice, but Schwarzenegger will be gone in a year. 
and there'll be somebody else. Why do we have to worry about this? You get those kind of reactions that, that, that just slow up, that are very, very frustrating. I do think you need kind of a, a constant pressure, and I think that we have that to some extent uh, in, the, in the state here, uh, from the governor on down uh, with the Energy Commission and the Public Utilities Commission and some changing faces in these places to really get some things done. But I don't want to soft soap it by saying it's easy. Just saying signing memorandums between the Secretary of the Interior, uh, Ken Salazar, and the governor doesn't make things happen. It takes a lot more const constant effort with the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, most of that desert lands that we're talking about here is, is under federal purview. It's under the, the Federal Bureau of Land Management. And they move at their pace. And their pace is not the pace that I would prefer to see. And then we have the National Environmental Policy Act, just like we have CEQA in California that has to be met. And, and you have all these kind of challenges. But I do think that kind of unremitting pressure and effort and commitment and statutory change to, that says you have to do these things are the ways to do it. But I, I, there is no silver chalice here that I've found, and I've been doing this now at the PUC. Uh, this is my eighth year as president. Nancy McFadden, you worked for Al Gore in the White House. You have government experience, private sector experience. What would you change structurally in government to speed to, things up? I have to say it's a little depressing when, when you have somebody who's right in the middle of it who um, is in a position of power to sound the frustration that Mike does. So I think, I think you'll hear frustration and, uh, and real recognition of the challenges from all of us, if you hear, it, if you hear so much from Mike. Um, I, I think part of what needs to be done is that uh, everybody needs to be held accountable. If, in fact, and it has been in California, decided that this is a public policy imperative for any number of reasons, climate change being, of course, chief among them, then, then everybody needs to be held accountable, not just the utilities who are watched very closely on every megawatt that they do or do not provide by renewable power. But I haven't seen, and the, and the PUC is watched pretty closely in terms of what they do and what they don't do. The Department of Fish and Game and other, other agencies are not watched and are not monitored in terms of what progress have they made in the last year on permitting renewable energy projects. So that's one thing. The governor has been a leader in this, and recently he's put one person in charge, and he's done a very smart thing, which is, sa is said, focus on those renewable energy projects that aren't permitted, that are eligible for stimulus funds, and that could lose stimulus funds coming into the state of California if government doesn't get its act together. So I think you have to look for levers and pressure, as Mike said, accountability and transparency to bring pressure to bear on all the levels of government that have got to move to get this done. Yeah, just, just on that point, just to emphasize what Nancy said, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger has appointed someone, Mike Picker, uh, a few months ago to do this. The stimulus money you have to, uh, from the federal government, it, it has to, you have to turn earth by the end of this year. Now that's, that's a certain compulsion. Uh, well, you don't get the money. If yeah. the project doesn't start by the end of the year, actually uh, uh, digging uh, uh, up the, 
ground, you don't get the funds. Now, that may be extended, but right now that's it. And that is a certain compulsion to force things to happen. You need that kind of, of emphasis, I think, to make things happen. We did it in the energy crisis in California. All of a sudden, we have a California Energy Commission that's supposed to cite power plants. All of a sudden, their process got sped up. We started citing a lot of gas-fired power plants, most of them built by Calpine, a Bay Area company in San Jose, in record time. We got all that, we got it done. And then the moment that things eased up a bit, everything went back to kind of a more laissez-faire, and I hate to say lackadaisical, behavior pattern. We have, and it's really up to all of us, people in this room, if you feel a sense of urgency about climate change, and you want California to be a leader and to, and to be a true leader, which is what we can be and we tend to be in this country and in many cases in this world, then, then that, that sense of urgency has to be transmitted to elected officials all up and down the line. Some companies, indeed some countries, have actually restructured themselves. Walmart's done a lot of restructuring. Uh, the U.K. restructured its bureaucracies. Is California government structurally unprepared to, do we actually need to move some uh, the org chart of the state to address this? <laughs> that's an issue. I think that's a separate issue for your government affairs group here to discuss at great, at great length. Obviously, there's a lot of, of talk about constitutional conventions, all kinds of other movement, parallel, you know, a paralysis in Sacramento and all that. Uh, but that's not my domain. Mine is energy policy. Uh, the question. answer is yes. <laughs> How would you do it? <laughs> I'll, let, I'll let Bob speak for that. How would you do it, uh, Czar Bob? How would I do it, Czar? Well, I would do two things. One is I would define the rules for what a successful project is, and I would set it above the current standards. I would assign one lead agency, and I would have everyone in that agency's. I would actually put them on bonus plans that are based on achieving the objectives. I'd run, uh, you know, now, let me tell you, the counter to that is all of the laws are designed to make sure that projects go as slow as possible, but no slower, to make sure a bad project doesn't get done. So that's how government's designed. That's how everything has worked. And if someone was about to put a polluting power plant in your neighborhood, you'd appreciate the fact that you've got time to try to fight it. So now we're suddenly going to say, as a society that there's actually something much worse coming, which is if we get far enough along this line so the Earth's feedback system starts putting out more greenhouse gases than we do, it's game over, you know. <laughs> so if we're suddenly saying that time matters on projects, we need to be very careful in defining what projects, how fast they can move. And then I think most of this is at the agency level for doing it, and you have to have lead agencies that have the authority to do it, so... That's what I would do when you appoint me czar, which I'm not expecting. <laughs> well, if you, if you are appointed czar, I think it would be great, Bob. But, well, I appreciate uh, that confidence. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say one other thing, and I, I think when we look inside all, all of this, price certainty that allows companies to make money, banks to make money in, a, in uh, uh, developing solar projects is still the fundamental thing. It's not that financing isn't available, I, I don't believe, today. It's financing is not available for projects that lose money. And uh, if we have price certainty at a level, and that level can decline over time as the cost of solar comes down, I think uh, that private developers will take over and uh, this, uh, this field will grow 
exponentially, and we can, and that is the way we're going to be able to meet the 33%. We have to have the bureaucracy come down in government. Uh, we have to have, I think, a, a czar in the, in the state government to do that. But we also have to have uh, price certainty uh, for banks and developers uh, to make money. So I, I think it's much more... Uh, as Bob says, it's not a technology breakthrough, so it's not the Manhattan Project. It's much more like the Marshall Plan uh, to get this done. And speaking of a price, we have a question from the audience about how would a price on carbon affect the speed and the economics of this? Uh, would that person want to say what price? It depends <laughs> upon the price. Yeah. Uh, a meaningful price, uh, more than in, in Europe. More than in Europe? A meaningful price. I guess no one wants to say. No, no, go ahead. All right. I, I mean, it obviously, it, would. it would change the cost of uh, fossil fuel generated uh, electricity, and uh, depending on uh, what the form of fuel is, I, it would make things much more competitive sooner. It would make a right. make a surge in energy efficiency. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. No, but it definitely would stimulate. Yeah, I mean, you know. if you set the price high enough. I mean, yeah. Europe, the price has gone up and down. It's down. But it, it, uh, I, I think long term, under the kind of cap and trade program that they, they have there, and we're talking about the United States or cap and dividend as the advisory group to, uh, to the state uh, air yeah. board talked about, uh, you, you will uh, ring out efficiencies and you will stimulate more renewable energy. I think that will be the, the you, consequence. It would also cause a lot of switching from coal to natural gas. But natural gas is a interim solution, right. not a long-term solution. Natural right. gas is very attractive uh, uh, when compared to coal because its emissions are about one-half that of coal. But you can't get to 80% to reduction, uh, which is what we, uh, by statute, uh, wish to do by 2050, uh, relying on natural gas. We have to rely on, on other uh, forms of energy, particularly uh, wind and solar and geothermal to a significant degree and biomass, waste to energy, and so forth uh, to get there. We, we as, as Bob has said, we, we know how to do these things, maybe not on the scale required yet, but we, we basically know how to do these things. It's a question of cost, and it's a, it's a question of commitment, and, and longer term to do it. And um, it's, I, I just hope it doesn't, the interest doesn't flag in our society. I don't think it will. I think uh, regardless of who becomes governor that will, uh, next this year, we'll have a continued emphasis on this. I certainly hope so. Mike Peavy is chairman of the California Public Utilities Commission. We're discussing solar power at the Commonwealth Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, well, how much of what happens in California uh, is dependent on federal action? We've seen a change in administration. Uh, California's been leading and likes to think it can go on its own. Do we, how much does it matter what happens in Washington, Mike? Well, I'd certainly like to see an energy bill. I'd like to see uh, the, the federal government take the lead that California has taken uh, for the entire nation, uh, because a lot of the, the cost issue is about scale and scaling up to huge levels. Uh, manufactured technologies benefit from, from large scale. And it's hard to get large scale in one state or in one region like Europe. Uh, so I, I'd very much like to see the United States take on a national RPS, uh, much like uh, California has done. Renewable electricity standard. I'm, I'm sorry, yes, yeah. a renewable portfolio standard or electricity standard, uh, yes. Bob, what would you like out of Washington? 
Well, I think the Department of Energy has done an awful lot in the last year through the stimulus program. So I think that's, that's been tremendously, tremendously helpful. So I, I kind of look at it as one of the big benefits of other states participating is we worry less about leakage. So if we move forward and integrate and, you know, and innovate itself, having the other states come along says we, we're less concerned about you know, temporary changes causing business to, to, you know, to reconsider where they're doing business or not. So having Washington participate is essential to solving the problem. It makes it a lot easier to do it because right now we're in this interesting situation. We have to figure out how to make this all work for California cost-effectively, assuming the rest of the nation just watches us. And I'd rather have some company. Absolutely. No, I, no, I th we think it's just incredibly important that we get federal legislation on this issue. It's the only way that we're going to be able to, as we saw in Copenhagen, have meaningful world movement on this for the United States to be a big actor on this. In the meantime, California and its leadership position has put pressure on Washington, and I think will continue to do so. But for us to really have a meaningful global warming solution in the United States and in California, you need a federal system. I, I think there's a, a great analogy here I'd just like to mention. When the previous administration, whose name I've already forgotten, um, had a very negative attitude towards stem cell research, the voters in California approved a bond measure to do stem cell research in California. California was the place to be. A lot of the researchers came here, and now that it's actually a federal program as well, California has a lot of the brain trust, a lot of the innovation. I'd like the same thing to happen. Like California, you got a serious head start in renewables. We already have a head start in efficiency. And then as, the, as it comes along federally, that we have a competitive advantage. But Bob, one of the things that's uh, happened over the last four or five years, if you look at uh, solar technology of all different kinds, PV technology in particular, uh, the, the uh, center of mass or center of gravity of where these panels are made has moved, started in Japan, mm -hmm. moved to Europe, uh, and now 50% of the panels are, are made in China. Right. Uh, so at, at this point, we don't have uh, much of a supply line here in California. And I, I think this is a thing we also ought to be, be concerned about as, uh, as we go forward and think about mass scale uh, distribution of solar energy. I think that's right. I mean, we do have the advantage of the intellectual property and sort of the R&D and the rest of that. But, you know, just to rag on California for a second, we're one of three states where if you want to build manufacturing in California, you pay sales tax on all of your equipment. Well, that's 8 or 9%. If you build in Oregon, it's 8 or 9% less. And so the state has become somewhat manufacturing unfriendly unnecessarily which is unrelated to whether it's clean tech or anything else. Uh, that's right. Uh, but we do have the IP advantage and the startup advantage, and we could fix the manufacturing. I think we need to. I think we yeah. need to And in the well. governor's state, I don't mean to all <laughs> work on the governor too much, but in his state of the state address, he did even talk about trying to address that. So maybe there's some interest now. Doing it. We have a number of questions from the audience about jobs. This is, we've been talking about the environment, uh, but this is also a jobs issue. And one question is, what can we do to keep these jobs in California and, and grow them? Well, one I, of the things you, we're just talking about is if you have the solar uh, panel manufacturing factories here in the state, 
those are permanent jobs. The output of that, those factories could be uh, deployed throughout the, the state. The state has, as uh, we said, huge need for renewable energy over the mm-hmm. next uh, uh, 40 years to reach our, our 80% reduction goal by 2050. Uh, so I, I think thinking about the whole supply chain here is an incredibly uh, incredible opportunity for this state to develop a new industry uh, not just do the R&D, but uh, get many of those uh, manufacturing jobs uh, as well. But we have to change policy to be able to do that. Bob? I think there's something, in addition to, uh, to manufacturing, there's some interesting research that was done at, at UC Berkeley that said, what's a dollar, if you spend a dollar on your electric bill and fossil fuels, how does that compare to a dollar spent in the local economy? And so it's about a 50 to 1 difference. So if we can divert a dollar out of fossil fuels into a dollar spent in the local economy, that's, that's 50 times more job benefit. So we did some math and said if we just take business as usual in California and you just take the government's forecast for energy prices and you compare that to a 33% renewable, the difference is about 700,000 jobs, most of them in the local economy. And that's, that's separate from what was just talked about in terms of the manufacturing jobs. Just think about when you, you know, that the natural gas from Canada is expensive and it doesn't create very many jobs. When you take renewables, you're eliminating the fuel cost and you're trading it for local labor. And in many cases, we believe that electric prices will be about $100 cheaper under 33% than business as usual. That extra $100 gets spent in the local economy. So the big benefit is to quit sending dollars to fossil fuel sources and instead keep them in the local economy in addition to the manufacturing and everything else. So it's a huge jobs opportunity. It's not just the manufacturing, too, and the R&D and and the intellectual properties and all, but there's a tremendous amount of construction that will go on here and maintenance. And, I mean, and the utilities like PG&E and Southern California Edison are already seeing this in, in terms of their apprenticeship programs and the, uh, more green jobs, the alteration of, of the job market and all. It's, it's exciting, and we're just getting a foretaste of what it could be if we really go all out in this over the next few years. We have a number of questions about the smart grid. What is it? A uh, question from the audience about how, much, uh, re- how many renewables could be put into the grid until it became a problem. So would you like to feel that, Mike? How many renewables can be put into the grid until it becomes a problem? This Actually, this can be a uh, – it is a bit of a challenge. Uh, here's here's the, the, the problem. We use electricity differentially. We use a lot more – at 6 p.m. in the evening and 5 p.m. in the evening, and we do it 5 and 6 p.m. in the a.m. in the morning. Uh, and uh, one of the great challenges with wind is that it tends to blow. Uh, it's an intermittent resource, but it tends to blow also in the late afternoons and the evening, the very time that you, that uh, uh, people are starting to decrease their usage. So we have to learn how to store these technologies, and and we do have ways of doing that. Uh, one of the great things about solar is that it tends to peak. It's, it's what's called a coincident peak with our, our uh, own demand for the product. And so that makes, that makes a big difference. But integrating all this into the, the so-called grid that, the, that today is run by something called the California Independent System Operator does become a challenge, and we have to master that, but we know how to do it. And so I'm not overly concerned about it, 
as long as we put in the, the, enough effort. The, the, but we do have to make sure that we don't over-resource any particular renewable in a way that today even we already have a good bit of wind in Southern California that uh, sometimes in the middle of the night uh, the Edison company cannot uh, totally use. So it sells it at a very, very cheap price uh, into Arizona or, or elsewhere. And uh, that's not the most efficient economic system. So we have, and my job at the Public Utilities Commission is not only to be interested and in, in, in a very strong proponent of renewable energy uh, and very concerned about climate change, but I also have to be concerned about the impact on all of us in terms of our rates. Uh, and we just can't have prices uh, go through the ceiling. So we try to we try to do things in a rational basis in terms of of economic impacts, and uh, admitting that some of that uh, is beyond our direct control. And so, but it's something that has to be kept in mind as we integrate renewables into the grid. As I said, solar has a great advantage of that because it has what's called a largely coincident peak. It, it hits its peak at four, three, four in the afternoon, and our our usage is, is shortly thereafter. And if we can combine solar with uh, the capability to store some energy uh, with advanced battery technology, with pump storage facilities, with molten salt facilities like they are using in Spain today, these things prolong the solar uh, uh, project uh, uh, output too and also help in the integration of the resource into the grid. You mentioned rates, and there's a difference between rates and bills. We have high rates in California. Our bills are different because we have high efficiency. Is it possible that we could increase efficiency in California and also raise rates, but we end up paying lower bills? Well, we're, we're very much committed to doing just that. How well we succeed, is uh, we shall see. But, no, but what, what is, uh, uh, is being said here by Greg is simply the following. Our rates, if you look on your bill, are, are high compared to, say, in Idaho or in Oregon or Washington. But, we, but our temperature is, uh, we have a, a, a more equitable climate here, by and large, with some exceptions I'll get to. And that means that our usage of electricity and natural gas for heating purposes and all tends to be less than it does in some other states. So the overall economic impact tends to be somewhat muted. People come from the east to California, and then they say, you know, the, our, my charge is higher on a kilowatt-hour basis, but my overall bill is about the same as it was in, you know, in New York, or, well, it's even less than New York, but uh, than it was in Cincinnati or something of that type. But that's not always the case, as PG&E found out in Kern County this past <laughs> fall. Uh, and we have in Thank Palm you. Springs, uh, even more so, more dramatically in Palm Springs, the desert area, San Joaquin Valley in particular, uh, uh, also, uh, where you, when you have heat spikes, uh, rates become very, very high, and, and uh, we have what's called, we, ha we adopted at the Public Utilities Commission years ago, uh, re graduated rates that go up by tiers, and the idea of that is to, is to incentivize people to use less because the, net, the third tier is higher than the second tier, and the fourth tier is higher than the third tier, and so forth. But the consequence of that, if you have a heat spike, is all of a sudden people find themselves in the highest tier and their bills all of a sudden turn out to be 50% higher than perhaps they were in the previous uh, month in the previous year when the climate was much, was much cooler. And that is not a very pleasant thing, not only for the individuals that are impacted, 
but for their elected officials and others who then come screaming to the Public Utilities Commission about what in the heck are you doing and what did you allow them to do and all that kind of stuff. So these are, these are somewhat complicated issues that we're dealing with here. The smart grid, to some extent, over time, as we uh, put in new meters, uh, which we're doing all over the state, we're putting 18 million new meters, smart meters, uh, into uh, all residences, uh, both this is gas and electric in California. PG&E's put in a good three million of them or so by now already. Will give you, the customer, a greater say over your electric usage, and you'll be able to to uh, time the use of your uh, electric dryer, or if you have a swimming pool, your pool pump, or or what have you, uh, to the true cost of electricity by, uh, by hour of the day, and therefore you'll have more control over your usage and probably be able to reduce your prices. That's the hope. That's the goal we're striving for. Mike Peavy is chairman of the California Public Utilities Commission. We're discussing climate change at Commonwealth Club. Uh, climate one at the Commonwealth Club. Nancy? Well, I, I just wanted to add that I think it's really important that no matter what subject we're talking about uh, in renewable energy to always make sure we include energy efficiency because it is really in by California policy but also just in in the right scheme of things really the first fuel and we should never forget it and we do believe that there's a lot more that we can do in energy efficiency and smart grid and the foundation of the smart grid, these smart meters, really are going to be another key to unlocking our ability to reduce energy usage by giving people the power of information. Let's talk about storage a little bit. We have a question from the audience. Uh, we touched on storage. Uh, Bob Epstein, is storage a, a technical obstacle, or is that overstated? Over, uh, um, well, it, it all depends on where you are in the cycle as you approach trying to eliminate all carbon from, from electricity you have to have a lot more knowledge behind it. But I think you have to look at storage at several different levels. So one level is sort of these, these intermediate changes during the day and for a couple-hour time period. I think we kind of know how to, how to solve that. I don't know if the utilities have enough incentive to install, install stuff. We know how to do that. For long-term storage, the best thing we can possibly use is natural gas because it's easy to cycle on and off. It's relatively inexpensive. And there are experiments to sequester the carbon out. So even though Mike calls it a transition fuel, which I agree. We could do a tremendous amount using natural gas to buffer variability in renewables, add sequestration on it. We'll eventually run out of natural gas, but before then we can get, we can get a lot done with that. So I, don't, I think storage is important, but I don't think that's the bottleneck in my career time frame yeah. <laughs> of working on this. Let me, let me just add a word to that. What Bob, Bob used the word sequestration. Let me explain what that is. We're t- we're coal... Natural gas produces carbon. Coal produces a lot more carbon than natural gas, but they both produce carbon. Ultimately, we want to be able to either have a carbon-free uh, environment, and that's all, it's very difficult to see that in the next 20 to 30 years, although we're, we could head in that direction. We're going to have to master how to store this carbon so that it's not in the environment. And that's storage, it's car- carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and sequestration, same thing. In California today, even though we don't burn any or almost no coal within this state and we don't mine any coal in this state, we do import coal in this state, we, do, we have done a lot of research on carbon capture and sequestration already and because 
We're fortunate enough to have now the head of the U.S. Department of Energy, the former head of the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, Stephen Chu, who's a Nobel laureate. He has helped California in research, and we, have, we recently were awarded over $300 million to do a carbon capture and storage or sequestration project in Kern County, where we would take the we would take what today this is a a terrible indictment of, our, of, of us in, a, in one sense. We have 14 petroleum refineries in California produce, at least, that would produce petroleum coke. That's the so-called bottom of the barrel. It's really dirty, unattractive stuff. We don't have a market for it in California, but there is a world market, and we send it overseas. We send it to the Far East. Its residual comes back in the Sierras. We have it in the Sierras uh, all the time. Uh, the idea is to take that petroleum coke, turn it into, into hydrogen, use the hydrogen in a power plant that Southern California Edison would build in Kern County that would reduce the carbon content 90% and, and put the rest of the CO2 in the ground in enhanced oil recovery and get more oil out of the ground, and it's kind of a closed loop. Instead of exporting it, we, we clean up our own mess. Uh, that is something that the uh, uh, U.S. Department of Energy has funded now, this, the first step of this project, over $300 million. It's very exciting. I do think that California's long-term future in energy is dependent on us being a world leader in research and development. And we have, in this state, the most incredible intellectual property at our national labs, at our universities like Berkeley and Stanford and Caltech, and we have to maximize our use of those labs and stimulate helping others, including the Chinese, the Indians, and many others who face some of these challenges and keep building coal plants after coal plants. I mentioned earlier Chinese are going to build solar, and when they go at something, they go at it, but they're also building an awful lot of coal plants because they have a lot of coal. And it's dirty, and it, if you've ever been to Shanghai or Beijing, you know how unattractive it can be much of the year in terms of air quality, which is uh, uh, very fatal in terms of uh, human being and human lives there. Uh, Greg, if I could Mike just Flinders say a couple China. of things about storage. I, uh, I, uh, storage for solar, I, I don't think we really uh, is required in the, in the short term. Uh, because of what Mike said, that solar is coincident with when power is being used. It is required for renewables sometime over the next 10 or 20 years uh, as uh, more uh, electricity is generated, particularly from wind that needs to be stored. Uh, the easiest storage is pumping water. Uh, up a hill and then it comes back down? Yes. You, you can pump the water up with uh, the excess electricity and then let it come back down to generate electricity when you when you need it. Uh, but battery technology is still a long way from being practical at grid-level scale. Mike also mentioned China. Let's talk about China. Uh, Thomas Freeman wrote an article uh, recently that basically said China is going to eat America's lunch on energy technology. Is that true? Are we losing our edge to China? I, I think that when you look at what China is investing, there's a very good probability uh, of that. Uh, the universities, the young people are very excited. As Mike pointed out, they, uh, China has a serious problem, and you talk about urgency needed to be developed in a society. I, I think they can see the urgency in the air. 
the air is polluted. Literally. They can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you can it's see the, the pollutants in the air. So, yeah. Uh, can't see anything else. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So, uh, the, the young people growing up in China don't want that to be the case uh, uh, 20, 30, 40 years from now. Uh, they're investing heavily uh, into new technologies. They're investing very heavily into manufacturing technologies, which means countries like ours in Europe will help fund uh, the R&D that uh, they're going to invest in if we don't do something about uh, having some of that manufacturing here in the U.S. But I would add two things about, about China. One is that it's their government policy that's giving them an advantage. Yes. Uh, I, I absolutely that's agree one with point that, I would make. And the second point is their urgency is also economic. They have chronic energy shortages. They typically run 10% behind on that. And when they do that, they shut down the factories, not the air conditioners. And so they, in addition to the health problems they have and other things, they have an urgent economic need, whereas our economic need is not a shortage of electricity Ours is kind of a different factor. Uh, this well. is despite bringing on some 50 coal plants last, uh, last year. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm a little more sanguine than the other two speakers here about <laughs> the U.S. vis-a-vis China uh, because we do uh, have the intellectual properties. And in the company I mentioned at the start of this talk, eSolar, which is going to build this 2,000-megawatt two, uh, uh, solar central station plant in, in Mongolia, uh, inner Mongolia, part of China, the intellectual properties and all and, and, and remain in the U.S. I mean, but, yeah. but it is an incredible challenge. I was in China as a guest of the government there in, in October, and they're graduating 10 times as many engineers as we, uh, we do, at least 10 times. Uh, you're amazed at how many young people there are in all the different companies there that are incredibly vital. They're in, not just in the solar field, although it's, it's not the most advanced solar, they're building electric vehicles. They're not, they won't be as, as handsome as some of the uh, cars built uh, uh, here or in Europe, but they're building them for a mass market, electric vehicles, and they are, it's an economy on the move. It's one half the size of the U.S. economy, but it's four times as many people as the United States. And uh, it's an incredible challenge. I think it's up to us to work, try to work as cooperatively as possible right. with them. I'm not worried about them stealing our lunch so much as, as I am that, that they don't mind the environmental needs of their own people, nor the Indians, and at, at a pace that uh, is, I think, imperative. And as Bob spoke mm-hmm. to uh, before, we're, we're all in the soup. I mean, we're up to, what, 385 parts per million in ter- ter- terms of... Uh, uh, and uh, we can't afford to go to 550 or so. And that's where the right. world is headed if, if we don't curb the carbon usage around it. We haven't mentioned nuclear. We have to wrap up. Let's just touch quickly on, on nuclear. It's not solar, but it, it, how does it compare to renewables and other things, Mike? And then we'll go down for closing. Well, I, I spend very little time talking about nuclear because nuclear in California, uh, by statute, is uh, any any expansion in nuclear is prohibited until there is a long-term uh, means that the California Energy Commission certifies for the storage of nuclear waste. This was a statute passed in 1976 that has survived all kinds of legal tests. Uh, nuclear actually has a role to play in, 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 in China and in much of the world. Uh, there is a commitment to nuclear because it, it is non-polluting. But it's extremely expensive. And, I mean, the kind of projects we're talking about, building in the southeast United States for a 1,000-megawatt plant today are $7 billion 
or more dollars, and and nobody. It's very difficult to get bank financing <laughs> for these things when there is no clear cost cap. The federal government is going to have to step in and do some things. I I think that there nuclear in California. We have two plants. San Onofre and Diablo Canyon. They operate beautifully. They were 95% capacity factories. They're the backbone of the California electricity, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But we're not going to see any, any expansion in the next 10 to 20 years in California. And uh, my, my life expectancy will, is probably contained within those numbers. <laughs> so uh, I'm quite content to work on, the, uh, on solar and uh, wind and biomass and geothermal and uh, energy efficiency, which we didn't speak enough of today, but that was not the topic, and all these things that I, I could get my hands around. We could do things in the short term. Uh, the other is much, much longer and just doesn't, uh, I, doesn't fascinate me. Nancy, maybe you agree with Mike, but does the PG&E want any more nuclear? I think we recognize the law in California. I think what Mike said that's important is that, is that the two nuclear power plants that we have in this state are incredibly important to our clean energy future. And it's not only reliable power right now, but it's also, it also keeps the costs of power much lower. You remove those and you're in big trouble in ach- achieving... Uh, affordable electricity rates and achieving uh, a carbon-free or a lower greenhouse gas future. So what we've got now is incredibly important. Because these plants were built 20 years ago, and right. they're largely depreciated. Right. So outside of fuel cost, they're, they're pretty... That's a big difference between that and building a brand-new one. Right. I mean, there's a huge... I, I think in, in most places around the world, we'll see a huge proliferation of nuclear. It's the, actually the best complement to... Uh, uh, for solar, uh, solar can handle the peaking. Nuclear can handle the base uh, base load. Uh, that's not going to happen in California, but I, I think we'll see it in uh, many countries around the world. Bob Bestein, a lot of environmentalists are against nuclear, but some are coming around. Where do you stand? Where do I personally stand? Uh, I'm not so smart as to know we can solve it without it. So I'd like to see the nuclear industry try, and then I would like to compete with them and may the most cost-effective, safest solution win. But I don't want to discount it, because we might need it. With that, we'll have to end it. Our thanks to our audience here and to our panelists. Our thanks to Mike Peavy, Chairman of the California Public Utilities Commission, Nancy McFadden, Senior Vice President of PG&E, Mike Splinter, Chairman and CEO of Applied Materials, and Bob Epstein, founder of Environmental Entrepreneurs. Thanks for coming to Climate One.